You know, I think I state the obvious when I tell you that God doesn't always operate the way we operate. He doesn't always think the way we think. He doesn't always uh, do the things we expect him to. He doesn't even always do the things that we really want him to, even if we've thought it out, even if we've reasoned it, even if it makes absolutely no sense that somebody would do something else. How many of you ever felt this way about God? We all have. And even though we realize, deep, deep down, even though we realize that his ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts, and even though we understand that he is God and we are not, sometimes the way God operates leaves us disillusioned. We know he knows more. We know he's always right. We know that if there's ever a clash between our thinking and his, his wins out, ours doesn't. Yet we don't always feel that way. We don't always believe that. We believe it intellectually, but we don't believe it functionally. How many have ever felt that way? Just got a call yesterday. I don't take many calls, and I'm just, I just cannot answer questions. But uh, I took a call, and person said, does God, does God allow, does, does God, is everything God's will? I said, Yes. So it's God's will when a woman gets raped, God's will when a baby gets run over by a car. Well, yes. Really? Yeah. God causes some things, and that's the will he decrees, but God allows some things. He doesn't get involved with them. The human sin condition and his allowance of it is a divine mystery. It's a profound thought, but it is his will. Because nothing happens without his will. But you just have to understand both sides of his will. And I could tell the lady who called, who was probably still investigating Christianity, uh, from everything I could tell in the conversation, was just locked up by this. But that locked up, that confusion, that disillusionment doesn't stop. In fact, it never stops. We'll never fully grasp God. We can't. And that's the condition Jonah finds himself in, in Jonah chapter 4, as we wrap up our study Let's take a look at it. So take out your Lakeshore notes, and let's talk about when you're disillusioned with God. Because Jonah was really disillusioned with God. As you take out your notes, let's do a little book chart review. And the book chart is on the back of your notes. Remember, Jonah's a four-chapter letter. There are two story cycles. Chapter 1 and 2, story cycle 1. Chapter 3 and 4, story cycle number 2. In Jonah chapter 1 and 2, we see Jonah fights God's mission and then eventually gives in. Next slide, please. Thank you so much. And then in chapter 3 and 4, Jonah fulfills God's mission. And we saw how he fulfilled it in chapter 3. He went to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. He proclaimed 40 days and repent. Remember that? And then what happened? There was a citywide, capital-wide conversion of people. And you would think this would make Jonah happy, but it didn't. And so we'll leave it here for a second. And in chapter 4, the fundamental question that is dealt with, Jonah's angry. We'll see twice, God says, do you have a right to be angry? And it ends with a question. It's a chapter loaded with the questions of a disillusioned prophet so that God can speak to 
disillusioned people like you and I. Remember, we can leave it here for a second. In chapter 1, Jonah swallowed by the great fish. It's a picture of the death of Christ. Chapter 2, when Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights, probably not literally 72 hours, but it's an expression. Any part of a day was considered a day and a night. And then was expelled by the great fish. That was a picture of what? The burial and the resurrection of Christ. And then chapter 3 and 4, he preaches the gospel, which is what happens when somebody appropriates faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But in chapter 3 and 4, we see grace and forgiveness, which are what? The things that flow out of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we see grace and forgiveness demonstrated to Nineveh, and this puzzles Jonah. Let's go to the next slide. Remember our our little map? I forgot to bring my laser pointer, but it's it's okay. You can see there in the uh, lower right corner, there's Jerusalem. We don't know where Jonah was. He's probably somewhere near Jerusalem, and he went just uh, to the left of that, to the west, to Joppa, and he went to the Mediterranean Sea. You don't see it, probably to Tarshish in southern Spain, but somewhere mid-flight in the Mediterranean, he was swallowed up by a great fish, sperm whale, whatever it was, expelled back on dry land, and then he went to Assyria and Nineveh, and he preached. Today, you see where the capital city of Nineveh is? Look just to the left of it, uh, I believe just to the west, And that's where we're going to find Jonah for chapter 4. So let's talk about when we're disillusioned with God. We're going to look at Jonah's anger. We're going to look at God's ask. We're going to look at Jonah's anguish in response to the question. And then ultimately God's answer. So let's look at Jonah's anger. The first thing we're going to see is how God's compassion for Nineveh is displayed. God's compassion for Nineveh. Let's just read again, just a little bit of background. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, that is the Ninevites repented to the preaching of Jonah's call to repent, and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. You have to understand that. That God relented from this drove Jonah's reaction in chapter 4, verse 1. But, contrastive, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. In the Hebrew, it literally means he became hot. My wife sometimes, you know, when she gets upset, she'd go, I was white hot mad. I was mad hot. And I go, yeah, you're mad hot. No, I actually, that's, but I don't think she means it. She's just like angry. It literally means to become hot. Jonah became hot. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? What's he referring to? All the way back to chapter 1. He goes, I I knew you were going to do this. I I knew you were going to do this. I knew you'd do this to me. I knew you were going to do this to them too. I knew it. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. That's why I went the other way. I knew That you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that is great theology. Four aspects of the character of God, the attributes of God, as they're sometimes called by theologians, the attributes of God. That you are gracious. That God demonstrates his power and unmerited favor to people. That you are compassionate. That he looks at people 
and doesn't have sympathy or empathy, but compassion. Compassion says, I see your pain, I feel your pain, I'm going to do something about it. And that he's slow to anger. God easily could fly off the handle. Actually, he could never fly off the handle. He could easily get angry righteously over things, but he is slow to anger. He counts down before he blasts off. And he's abounding in love. It just has the idea that, look at those beautiful attributes. Jonah says, I knew that was you. So he's got a great theology. Jonah could teach the attributes of God. He'd get an A. He could write a paper on it. He'd get an A. He's got the theology right. But the application is where he struggles and stumbles. And then he says, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Again, why was Jonah displeased? Let me give you a number of reasons. I think the ultimate reason is obvious. Number one, the Israelites, or, or excuse me, Nineveh and Assyria uh, were a threat, and they were evil. We cited this earlier in the series. How they were a threat, and they were an evil people. It'd be like God causing a national conversion of the Nazis in Germany during World War II. It'd be just like that. Second reason why this displeased Jonah is because the Israelites had a nationalistic self-interest and saw themselves as the exclusive apple of God's eye. Now, of course, we know that Israel is God's chosen people. By the way, to be theologically correct, they still are God's chosen people. Israel is God's chosen people today, and they always will be, even in the millennium. Israel is always God's chosen people. I mean, starting when God actually literally chose them through Abraham, and they will always be his chosen people. In a different sense, in a fresh sense, in an incredible sense, so is every Christian. We're called, we're the elect. In fact, the church, ecclesia, ek kaleo, or the two compound word, ek from, kaleo, called out, ecclesia, called out from, the church are elect. The church, by definition, are the elect. So we're, we're God's chosen people in a certain sense, but Israel is always God's chosen people. That's why God has a distinct future for them in, in the last days. But they had such a, a narrow-minded view of themselves that they were the only way God could love. They forgot that God loved people in other nations, even if they weren't the chosen race like Israel was. Third reason why I think Jonah was locked up is Jonah probably knew from contemporary prophets, and we know that, that during Jonah's time, two of the minor prophets that were around during his time were Amos and Micah. And they are all small minor prophets in the same section of the Old Testament as Jonah is. And if you read about it, they both predicted that Assyria would eventually take over Israel. You think Jonah knew that? Of course he did. And he didn't want to see that happen. And you can understand. But this bothered him. And then there's a fourth reason. Jonah had some personal pride. And let's just face it. Jonah had some mood swings. A lot of, I mean, let's... In chapter 1, he was disobedient. In chapter 2, he changed and he was thankful. In chapter 3, he's obedient. And now in chapter 4, he's in the hour wing at Strong Memorial. I mean, he's depressed. This guy, this, guy, this guy, he's all over the place. I mean, think about it. Verse 3, I knew you to be a gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, loving God. That's why I want to die. <laughs> 
right? All these incredible traits of God, and this is why I want you to take me now. Silly, isn't it? It's juxtaposed together to show the folly of Jonah's view. But he was disappointed. By the way, in verse 2 there, there's three great confessions in the book of Jonah. Jonah makes three great confessions. I'll give you the verse references, then I'll cite them. They are chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 4, verse 2. Three great confessions in the book of Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 9, I worship the Lord, God of heaven, who created the earth and the sea. His second great confession, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. And his third great confession in Jonah is right here. You are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. So that's Jonah's anger. His anger is God's compassion for Nineveh. And don't you feel that way sometimes? Like, God, you, should, you, should, you shouldn't let them get away with that. Uh, why, do you, why do you let those people win and let us lose? It's a common theme in the Psalms. Read the Psalms sometime. God, why do my enemies get the win and I get the loss? Read Habakkuk. We studied Habakkuk uh, a couple of years ago. It's one of the fundamental questions. It's the question of theodicy. Theodicy is the question, why does a good God allow evil in the world? And he wrestles with that. And at some level, it's very understandable because all of us wrestle with that. Why does that win? And I'm trying to do it right, and I lose. Why are godless people millionaires, and I can't pay my bills? Or whatever. So God makes an ask. He questions Jonah's displeasure. That's the second point. God's ask, questioning Jonah's displeasure. Very simple, verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Notice Jonah doesn't answer, or at least the answer is not recorded. Jonah wanted to be saved from drowning, but he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved from sin. Pretty selfish when you think about it. And we can all be pretty selfish when we think about it. He questions Jonah's displeasure. He simply says, have you any right to be angry? I want you to think about it, Jonah. I'm going to let this question float out there. I want you to think about it. You have a right to be angry. Think about it. And when you're ready, give me a good answer. God lets the question float out there. Of course, the implied answer is no. Of course you don't. By the way, doesn't God do that to us sometimes? You make a prayer request, you think it's reasonable, and God doesn't answer. You ever wonder why? Why doesn't God answer my prayer? And I'm not suggesting I know the answer every time. Can I suggest one of the answers some of the times? It's this. If God answered your prayer really quick, the lesson would not be left and indelibly marked in your life. Sometimes the long answer leaves the most permanent, indelible, lasting change in your life. Now, I don't like that. I like quick answers. I like action. God says, I like character. And sometimes action does not equal character. Doing something, being an active person, even active in the church, that's great. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a mature Christian. 
just as the other extreme, studying the Bible and quoting it and then doing nothing in the church doesn't make you, there's no one thing that, if I just do this one thing, I'm a mature Christian. And sometimes God just says, I want you to struggle. I want you to struggle with this so that when I give you the answer, appreciate it. You're ready for it. It's going to change you. So that in some form or fashion, we don't have to go through this exact same thing again. And that's why I think he just floats it out there and there's no recorded answer or no recorded response. He wants to change our hearts. So he lobs that question at Jonah. Remember that question. Remember that question. Then the third thing that happens in verses 5 to 8, we see Jonah's anguish. And we see now... God asked the question, do you have a right to be angry? Now what God's going to do in the rest of the chapter, and as it turns out, the rest of the book, he's not going to give Jonah ontological, straight information. He's going to illustrate it through a vine. A vine. And illustrate it. So look at what he does. Verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. So actually said to the left, it's actually east of the city, it's to the right on that map. So he went out east of the city. And commentators ask, why did Jonah go east of the city? Nobody knows for sure, but you can imagine he went there to keep an eye out on the city. Maybe he wondered, well, maybe God will judge it after all. Or I want to see what's going to happen. Will they people gloat? Whatever it was, he wanted to see what was happening in Nineveh. So he sat just east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Again, why, what he expected, the text doesn't tell us. Verse 6. Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Do you smell a setup right here? <laughs> Jonah was really happy about the vine. They go, oh, he has a shelter, why does he need a vine? Well, the shelter provided some level of protection. And apparently, maybe some sun still got in or some heat came in. But this plant, which grew, this vine, which grew, probably provided additional protection, maybe from the wind, maybe from the sun, maybe from both. We definitely know it was from the sun. And he made it grow up over Jonah to give him the shade and ease the sun baking he was experiencing. He was very happy about this. Verse 7, but at dawn the next day, the Lord provided a worm which chewed at the vine. By the way, the vine, you know, we don't know exactly what kind of vine it was, but it could be a castor bean plant. Uh, a castor bean plant doesn't grow, grows quickly, but doesn't grow 12 feet in a day. And we know they're very sensitive that any attack to the root or the base of a castor vine um, can cause it to die and um, castor bean plant. And apparently that's what happened. God set the worm, ate it, and then the text says, it chewed the vine so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. Jonah was very happy about the vine. Vine's gone. Jonah wanted to die. Did you catch what was said three times? Did you catch it? See it? 
God provided the vine. God provided the worm that caused the vine to die. And then this, this, that, that took this one rocks world. And God provided the scorching sun to burn his spokesman, his servant, Jonah. God provided all three. See that? When the lady called me yesterday and said, God, is everything God's will? Yes. God doesn't will for sin to exist in the world. But God allows it, and that is a dimension of his will. God would prefer not to sunburn Jonah. But he's more concerned about the heart of Jonah than he is about the skin of Jonah. He's more concerned about the eternal destiny of Jonah than the temporal condition of Jonah. And that's why he does what he does. Every single circle at every time. Verse 6, God provided the vine. Verse 7, God provided the the worm. Verse 8, God provided the scorching east wind. And Jonah said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Does that sound familiar? Sure. He said that in verse 3. This guy's got mood swings. I want to die. I'm happy. I want to die. All in a matter of a few verses. The point of the whole passage, this whole section, the whole story, is that through the vine, Jonah would know what it would feel like to not have God's grace, compassion, slow anger, abounding loving kindness. He says, let me see if I can help you understand the Ninevites' plight personally. Right? We all know what it's like to watch a program where you see starving children and you go, ain't it awful? Boy, that's sad. Boy, I'm going to give. And then you do a mission trip. And then you walk through an impoverished situation. And you touch and hold a hungry kid. Or you see a family that wonders about the next day. And it's different, isn't it? It was for me. I mean, I'm ashamed to say 50 years old and I do my first mission trip. And it's one thing. It's one thing to see a picture of something. And it's another thing altogether to experience it. And God said to Jonah, trying to tell you, son, but you've got to experience it. And what the vine was, Jonah, the grace of God was to the Ninevites. And his whole point in getting Jonah to say, I want to die, can't take it, can't believe you do that to me. He says, now let's amp it up. We're just talking about a little plant and we're talking about your skin. I'm talking about my grace and I'm talking about 120,000 people plus and their soul. That's why we always care about people that are far from God. Never, never want to be a part of a church where that's not happening. Never want to be a part of that. Do you? And it only happens when we invite people. 
It only happens when we have what Jonah had in chapter 3 and not what Jonah had in chapter 4. I encourage you, you know, free commercial, whatever you want to call it, doing this incredible sports series. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's the truth. Probably an easier invite than Christmas and Easter. And we have three more weeks to do it because then they'll have to put up with me after that. That's, that's nothing to invite anybody about. Invite somebody. Take a risk. Pray for somebody. Get a mailer. Take a flyer. Don't be like Jonah. Say, oh, well, if they're elect, God will choose, you know, all this. Anguish. Anguish. And God's answer? The very end of the book, he explains his compassion extends to all people. He explains his work in the vine incident. Let's start with verse 9. He says, but God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Does that sound familiar? Except for the about the vine, do you have a right to be angry? Yeah, he said that over there in uh, verse 4. So twice, he repeats, he repeats, Jonah twice repeats, better for me to die than to live. God twice repeats, do you have a right to be angry? This time he qualifies it. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Why does he say about the vine this time? Because now he's going to use the vine. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine to explain his first question? Do you have a right to be angry about the Ninevites' condition? See that? And he explains it, and he says this. I do. I'm angry enough to die. God says, I got you. You do have a right to be angry. Good. Now you're going to fully understand my lesson. And he unpacks it. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. It has the idea of this dinky, stupid, temporal little vine. This vine. I can see the intonation or hear the intonation in God's voice. You've been concerned about this little vine. Though you did not tend it, or make it grow. You had nothing to do with any of that. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. By the way, how does a plant grow 12 feet overnight? There is no plant known that grows 12 feet overnight. This was a miracle. It is a quick-growing plant. It's kind of interesting that God used a quick-growing plant, but he still did something miraculous. There's no, to my knowledge, there's no plant that grows, a castor bean plant doesn't grow 12 feet in a day. It grows quick, but not that quick. So there certainly had to have been some level of miracle here. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. By the way, that probably was just the adult male population because it's possible that the city population had between 300 and 600,000 people. We don't know for sure, but that was probably just the adult male population. You go, well, doesn't that sound chauvinistic? I don't know. That's what happens a lot in the Bible. I don't think the Bible's chauvinistic. It's just the way the culture was. It's just how it is. And that's probably what the count was. And he says, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. In other words, they're spiritually dead and ignorant. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? You know what's incredible? It's how God shows concern not only for the people, but for the animals. You know, I don't believe in some of the eccentric, wild, crazy-ness that goes on in environmentalism or animal rights. But I do believe as Christians, 
we should care for animals. Dogs, cats, rats, gerbils. I'm trying to think of all the animals we've had in our house. All of them. And we should care for the earth. My big problem is when you start worshiping the earth and the earth, that, that's, that's, that's lunacy. But, but you see, the, of all the things God says, and the cattle, care for the animals too. No wonder God says, Jonah says he's so full of compassion and abounding in love. Should I not be concerned about the great city? You see how he constantly draws a parallel, the city, the plant, the city, the plant, the city, the plant. You, the Ninevites, you, the Ninevites, you, the Ninevites. Constantly draws a parallel. Judson Mather wrote this about Jonah. He says, life for Jonah is a series of disconcerting surprises and frustrations. He tries to escape from God and is trapped. He then gives up, accepts the inevitability of perishing, and is saved. He obeys when given a second chance and is frustratingly, embarrassingly successful. He blows up. His frustration is intensified. And God says, Jonah, Jonah, don't you get the big picture here? Don't you get it? Again, I think I did this in chapter 1, and it's not original with me. Sometimes I do these little comparisons, and sometimes I steal them. And I got this from Nelson's complete book of Bible maps and charts. And it compares God and Nineveh Jonah and the plant. Just sit back and listen. God in Nineveh. God cared for the people of Nineveh. Jonah and the plant. Jonah cared for the plant. Notice the contrast. God was concerned for the welfare of others. Jonah was concerned for the welfare of himself. God created all that was in Nineveh. Jonah did not create the plant. God tended Nineveh. Jonah did nothing for the plant. The people of Nineveh are all of eternal significance. Every human is. The plant was of temporal significance. God's concern was and is for human life. And may I humbly add to this chart, an animal life. Jonah's concern was for personal comfort and selfish personal interest. God's concern was for, uh, for Nineveh is proper and displays his love. Jonah's concern for a plant rather than for people is improper. It displays selfishness and an improper perspective on life. And the whole lesson of this book is not just to tell us about Jonah's flaws and warts and to say, oh my goodness, why didn't Jonah get it right? It's to show us our own flaws and warts as well. And I find it interesting because if Jonah wrote this book and was so perceptive, wouldn't you agree that when he wrote this book, he figured it out? He got it. Wouldn't you agree? You don't think he's still confused, do you? I don't. I don't think he could have had the perceptive depth and insight he brings out in this book. I don't think so. But you know what I find interesting? Look at how he ends the book. He ends the book with a haunting, probing, penetrating question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's how it ends interesting because the compendium book, Nahum, that we're going to study, which is the follow-up to this book, that book also ends with a question. 
Why would God end it with a question? I think to get us to think about that question in our own life. Should you not, let's just make it personal, should you not be concerned about the great city of Rochester or the great city of wherever? Have a heart and a concern for people. People that aren't like us. They're not in our clan. They're not Israelites. But to care for them anyway, Jonah does. Finally. Let me give you a couple applications for those of you who are disillusioned. And we all are. Maybe you're disillusioned now. If you're not disillusioned with God now, hang tight. You will be. And if you are, hang tight. You'll get through. But let me share three lessons. Here's what I've learned from the text and how it intersects my own life. Number one, disillusionment comes when we turn God into something that fits our own conveniences. When we want God to be something we want him to be, that's when we get in trouble. That's when we get disillusioned. Jonah had the accurate theological description of God, but functionally he wanted God to be something else. Don't turn God into something he's not. That's a, it's, it's idolatry. It is a form of idolatry to turn God into something that he's not. Don't. Here are all these people that sin, that, that aren't Christians, that sin overtly and wickedly. And I go, you know, that's wrong. Well, you know, everybody does it. Uh, and and what, they, what they're basic, my God would never, well, I don't care what your God would do. I care about what the God would say. Yeah, my God would, my God would, my God would never do this. My God. Well, you stop faking and creating your own God and start living and understanding what the real God thinks. And I really could care less about what your God got about seven billion gods on earth probably except for a christian so maybe five six billion don't turn god into something he's not you'll be sorely disappointed you'll be very disillusioned and won't work that's what jonah did second fully accept the fact that this is tough fully accept the fact that god often loves in ways we don't like god often loves in ways we don't like. Can't believe you'd love that way, God. Can't believe you'd love that way. Can't believe you'd love that person. You know, somebody like uh, Ted Bundy, you know, who died in an electric chair a few years ago and allegedly became a Christian. And people, oh, how can he be a Christian? You know, I, just people can't believe the grace of God. Imagine a thief on the cross. Ah, all of this, and sure, that's pretty convenient. And yet Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, I don't like the way, I don't like that kind of love. Uh, he's got he's to come back and suffer. Listen, sometimes the way God loves is something we don't like. Get over it. Accept it. He loves perfectly, even if it, doesn't jive with our system. And then finally, realize we won't fully know the master plan, but we can know the master. Even if I don't know what God is doing, I know God. You know, one of the metaphors for being a Christian is I know Christ. But yet Paul says what? I want to know Christ. If I keep knowing Christ 
and I don't fully understand it, I still know Christ because I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So even if you don't know how God works, just know God. You know, we have little children, or we had little children, or we'll have little children, or we've seen little children. And you do things, and they go, why would you take that toy away from But you know there's a good reason they don't. And there is a master plan, and we're going to see that master plan next time we get together when we unpack the book of Nahum, and we see the time when God is, in addition to being uh, uh, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, are those the only attributes of God? Oh, no. Oh, in the book of Nahum, we're going to see that God also has the attribute of justice and righteousness. And we're going to see that next time. So let's just bow our heads, and then we'll have a little time for Q&A. Lord God, all of us have been disillusioned with you. And this is the human condition. But the truth of the matter, God, is we, we, we've never even had a smidgen, an iota of a right to do so. Our puny, cocky, insulting arrogance toward you is shameful. I admit, God, I am ashamed of how I think in my own sinful, selfish ways that I'm right and you're wrong. It's evil. And I pray that I wouldn't soon forget Jonah. And I pray, God, that none of us here would forget that even if your ways don't make sense to us, they are righteous and true. If this life were all there was, oh, it would be tough to swallow. But when we die and spend eternity with you, we realize what James says about life. It's a vapor. It's a It's a puff. It's a little fume. And then it's gone. I pray that we've also learned the lesson of this entire book, that we would obey you. That we would obey you when it's hard. That we would obey you even when it costs us something, that we'd obey you, even when our flesh would rather not. Thank you for this. Thank you for this, because we know that we have what Jonah did not have, the indwelling of your Holy Spirit provided by your Son, Jesus Christ, and faith. We thank you for this in his name. Amen. If you need to head out... um, we understand. Have a fantastic night. I hope, I hope you had a good time. But well, we have 12 minutes, but we'll, we'll try to keep it to 10. Any questions you have about the entire book of Jonah or maybe some of the theological issues? Bye, everybody. Have a good night. For those of you who are leaving, but for the rest of you, any questions or comments or thoughts about the book of Jonah? And we'll have a couple mic people. We've got Pastor Frank over here. Pastor Corey, would you be willing to help, buddy? And everybody, any questions? While we're waiting for questions, let me say that, um, like everything around here, the um, CDs are available. I don't know if they're available immediately after on Common Ground. They may or may not. They're certainly available on Sunday. You could buy the whole series 
Whenever you buy a whole series, you actually can get it at a cheaper price, but you can get this and any other message, you know, at Ripple. So, questions? Yes, we have one over here with Sue. Uh, right in the middle, guys. I never give the mic to anybody, yeah. so I'm excited. <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, Jonah asked to die twice or three times. I mean, what did he think was going to happen if he died? Did he believe in resurrection? I mean, I, I, I think, life after death? Yeah, so it's a good question. So I, I don't know that Jonah's theology or anybody's theology at that point was fully developed. You know, you, you raise a good question. So I think... In the immediacy, Jonah wanted to die to end the agony of the situation, both of being sunburned, but I think it was more than that, of having to be on the bad end of God's judgment and also having to see the Ninevites succeed. So I think that's fundamentally. But let me explain maybe a question within your question, Sue, because I think it's a great question. Is what did Jonah know about the afterlife? And I want to just expand this out. This is important. And one of the things I like to do is I like to give you some theology. So you need to understand this. Throughout the book of the Bible, from Genesis, as you move from the time of Genesis, written about 1400 B.C., to the book of Revelation, written around 100 A.D., and the time it covers, what you see throughout the Bible is the doctrine, this is a very important concept, it's called the progress of Revelation. Okay? Let me give you an example, and then I'll explain the afterlife. Genesis chapter 3. Remember, after Adam and Eve fell, the Bible says that, uh, Adam, you're going to be cursed, you're going to sweat, and by the way, work isn't a curse. That work is toilsome and painful and sweaty, that's the curse. And then Eve, you're going to have a curse, you're going to have pain, you know, when you give birth, and, and, then, and then remember the promise that, 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 that um, the serpent will bite at the heel, but the individual will step on his head. Well, what's that a picture of? I think ultimately it's a picture of Jesus Christ. But how could you know that just reading the first three chapters of the Bible? But what you know is from that initial thought, as you go through the Bible, the progress of revelation comes. So you read uh, the Psalms where it says, not a bone in my body shall be broken. What's that all about? And you read the prophets, and, and there's going to be a Messiah that comes, and Isaiah 53, and by a stripes you'll be healed, and Isaiah 55. So you see more and more progress and then in the New Testament, we have the fulfillment of the progress of Revelation. So, so there's a whole idea of the progress of Revelation. What we know today is not what uh, Noah knew in Genesis chapter 8, 9, 10. It's the progress of Revelation. So that's why um, death and the afterlife. What did Jonah know? Remember what David, who was earlier than Jonah, probably you know two or 300 years earlier than Jonah, David said what happened when his um, son with Bathsheba died. He will not be with me, but I will be with him. So he had a semi-developed understanding of the afterlife. My understanding is, at that point, I think Jewish people believed in the afterlife and believed in the resurrection. Of course, we know in Jesus' time, there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were a group of people that believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. But the, the answer is, Jonah had some probably limited form of the afterlife and probably thought he would be right with God because of his faithfulness or obedience through faith. So um, he probably thought he would be all right with God, but it's hard to know. But I think you're, that's a great question. 
Because this is important to understand that when you read something in the Old Testament, they didn't know exactly what we know in the New Testament. The progress of revelation, the whole concept of the afterlife was developed and developed and developed. That's why Paul in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 15, gives a whole chapter dedicated to the resurrection of Christ and what it all means. Very important concept. So when you read the Bible, understand this progress of revelation doctrine. Really important. So that I gave you a, a big answer. I, I guess the, the short answer is, I don't know what Jonah knew. I, 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 I think he just wanted out of the situation. And I don't think he had complex thoughts about, you know, if he's going to hell or not. I think he just wanted out. You know? He was a little, little flighty that way. Good question. Any other questions? Let me ask you a question. Um, is it hard to obey God when you'd rather not? <laughs> it is. Every day I get these little questions that come up to me and go, are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the convenient thing? Every single day I get this. And uh, fail sometimes. But try to win a lot, lot more than you lose. Going once. All right, let's just, we have, we have one over here? Was that you, Dan, or, or Jane, or somebody have one over here? I'm sorry. Okay, let's call it a night. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you when we start our series on Nahum next time. Have a good night.